We have one young lady who came down to pray, and I feel like the Spirit is moving here. I know that we have one young man who is going to undergo some tests tomorrow from, for some physical difficulties that he's been having, and I know that his family wants special prayer. So it would be perfectly appropriate. If you want special prayer for anything at this time, uh, I'd love for you to come down, and I'd love to have the chance to pray over you. That could be something physical. That could be something spiritual. That could be just something in life right now that's going on that seems bigger than you can handle. Uh, I'd love for you to come down. I'd love to have the opportunity to pray for you this morning. Is God good? Amen. When we sing that song, I sang part of that song at least growing up. We sang it a lot as I grew up in this church. And uh, it was true then and it's true now. God is good. Even when we can't see it, even when we can't feel it, even when we don't always know the path that he's leading us on and we can't understand it, God is still good. And he is still worthy of our praise. That's why I never get it when people say, I just didn't praise the Lord, didn't sing loud, didn't lift my hands today because I just didn't feel like I should. I'm not sure it's about feeling like we should. I'm pretty sure it's about he is worthy of our praise. He is worthy to be exalted this morning. I want this to be a thing at our church that nobody prays alone. If somebody comes up for prayer, I don't want them to be by themselves. It touched me. My mom moved over to pray with this young lady that came for prayer this morning. And I, I want that to be the way that we operate around here. When somebody comes for prayer, we don't want them to pray alone. So if there's any of you who'd like to surround these that are here for special prayer today, place your hand on, your, on their shoulder just to let them know that somebody's there. Somebody's behind them. Somebody's praying for them. And if you came up for anointing, make sure I know that. You can lift your hand up or whatever so I know who wants to be anointed this morning. Father, we love you today. And God, you are worthy of every bit of our praise and more. God, if we had a thousand tongues to sing our Redeemer's praise, they would not be enough. But Father, I thank you that you accept our feeble worship. Lord, we're just animated dust. Life that you have given, all our breath, all our strength, everything belongs to you. And yet, Lord, you love it when we praise you. You accept our praise as a father accepts praise from a child. And God, we thank you so much that you are good and you love us so much. And this morning, we anoint in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, God. And we just pray that you would work in this life. And you're already doing it, God, but work in ways where it's clearly seen that you are doing amazing things. God, touch, move, restore. God, do all things that you need to do. And God, we thank you that you're going to do that today and you're going to continue to do that. Anyone else need an anointing touch this morning? Father, I just pray right now in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that you would touch, that you would move. God, do, do what you need to do only through your Holy Spirit, God. And at the end of the day, we're going to know that it was your work and we're going to be careful to give you praise. We thank you in advance, Father. Now for this young man that is going to undergo some tests, Lord, and we know how scary, I know how scary medical tests are, God, and the waiting, and Lord, it, it not only is nerve-wracking for the one going through it, but for their family as well. And God, we just pray right now 
God, we believe, we believe in faith that you are going to touch, that you are going to give a proper diagnosis to the doctors, God, and there is going to be complete healing. And Father, we declare it right now that it is not anything dangerous, God. It is not anything that we're going to have to worry about. It's something that you're going to be able to bring um, under control, God, and you're going to restore full health. We believe that. We trust in that, God. We thank you for doctors. We thank you for the wisdom that you have given them, but we declare that all healing comes from you, and we thank you that you're going to touch this young man, and you are going to heal him. You're already doing it, and Father, we praise you for that. Anyone else this morning who wants to be anointed? Father, we just come, and I thank you so much for this couple, Lord. I thank you that they are part of our church, God, and I thank you that you are working in their lives. God, you are speaking to them today, and Father, I just pray right now their situation in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, God, you would work in an amazing way to touch them, God, to do whatever needs to be done. Lord, we don't know the, the full situation, but God, you know every detail of it. You know more than they know about it. And God, you know the good plan that you have for them, God. Not, not a plan to harm them, but a plan to prosper them and to give them a hope and a future, God. And we pray that you would work and you would do that, God. And we're so thankful that you are moving right now. Anyone else this morning? Anyone else? Father, we pray right now for a physical touch. We pray for a full restoration. We pray for health, God, physically and spiritually, Lord. Father, some of us have to deal with chronic things, things that are just a part of our life. And God, it seems so unfair, but it's part of being part of a broken world. And so, Father, we just pray right now that you would give grace, you would give strength, and you would give healing, God. Lord, we know that no matter what the diagnosis from a doctor is, we know that you can fully heal and you can fully restore. And so we have faith in that this morning, God. We just pray that you would touch in Jesus' mighty name and for his glory. Anyone else this morning? Father, we thank you that you're here through your Holy Spirit. God, you don't have to show up. You're under no obligation. But God, you love your people. God, you love it when on Sunday mornings we have these family reunions where we come together and we tell stories about the family and what's happened in the past. And God, when we look to our, our older brother Jesus, the heir of the family, God, and we just thank him for what he's done. And we, Father, we just come up and we, we sit down in your lap and you just hold us and you're just a good father over us, God. And we thank you that we have those opportunities every week. God, and we can do it when we leave this place. We don't just have to do it here, but there's something special that happens when we come here together. And so we thank you that you are here. We thank you that you are moving. God, I believe you have a word for us today. May your name be glorified. God, I do not want the name of to be glorified. God, if my name gets any glory today, I'm ashamed of that, Lord. I don't want any glory. And Lord, if Rushwood gets any glory today, Lord, please don't let that happen. We want your name to be glorified and exalted. You are the one we praise today. You are the one we are here to honor. Thank you for everything you've done for us, God. You are so good. Continue to speak to us, God. And whatever we need to let go of today, help us to let go of that thing and hold on tight to you. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. And Rushwood said together, amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much for praying with us this morning. A young man who had not visited our church before, he's actually a minister, um, 
told me a few weeks back as he visited our church, he said, I really appreciate your church because I can tell that your church has structure to it. You're not just all over the place, but at the same time, you have room for the Holy Spirit to work. And I took that as a deep compliment that God has a chance to get in here and work and we're not so programmed and we're not so organized that God can't show up and change the program if he wants to. And so that's what he did this morning and I love, I absolutely love when that happens. Thank you God for your blessings to us. This morning we are beginning a new series and this series is going to take us all the way to Easter, and I'm excited about it. I loved preaching the Why I Believe series. And by the way, did Pastor Jason not just kill it last week? I mean, he just did an awesome, awesome job of bringing God's Word. And I even heard him say that Carolina was a good basketball team. That made me feel so much better about him than I've ever been able to feel before. Um, but Jason did do a great job. I just I love knowing that I can step out of the pulpit, let somebody else step in, and it'll be just as good or better than what I bring to you. So we are blessed. We are super blessed to have that. But today we are starting a new series, and the series is called The Seven Signs of John. The Seven Signs of John. And so if you're smart, you've already put together, it's going to be a seven-part series over the next seven weeks we are going to talk, be talking about these signs that the Bible gives us to give us faith in Jesus Christ. John has probably been my favorite of the four Gospels for a long time. And I'm not sure if we should really say that we have favorite parts of God's Word because it's all God-breathed and it's all inspired and it's all useful in so many ways for us. But out of the four Gospels, I must confess, John is probably my favorite book. When I started teaching Sunday school at 19 years old, they stuck me with the middle schoolers because nobody wants to teach middle schoolers. And uh, they stuck me in that class and instead, and they had a, a little, I don't know what you call it. For adults, you'd call it a quarterly, but I don't know what you call it for middle schoolers. But anyway, they had that and they didn't like it and I didn't like it. So we just kind of tossed it out the window and we said, let's go through the book of John and let's take it verse by verse and let's talk about what God is teaching us there. And it was such a wonderful time back so many years ago that I was able to take those students through the book of John. And the book of John has always meant a lot to me ever since. The book of John was written by the man who was considered Jesus' youngest disciple. Almost any Bible scholar will tell you that John was the youngest of the 12 disciples. John was the son of Zebedee. He was a brother of James. He was actually a cousin of Jesus, not a first cousin of Jesus, but a near relative of Jesus. And he and his brother together were known as the Sons of Thunder. I don't know, some of you parents that have boys, y'all might have a pair of boys or two or three boys in the family that could be known as the sons of thunder. I get it, I've got two boys, and I, and I would understand why two brothers might be named that. But by the end, though, instead of being known as one of the sons of thunder, John began to call himself the disciple that Jesus loved. The disciple that Jesus loved. And I don't think we could see that. We could read that as arrogance on John's part, but I don't think it was arrogant at all. I think John was saying, I just simply cannot believe that Jesus loved me. I cannot believe that the creator of the universe, I cannot believe that the Messiah, I cannot believe that the Savior of the world loved even me. And so John became known as the beloved disciple. John was the youngest of Jesus' disciples, but he also lived to be the oldest of Jesus' disciples. Most Bible scholars will tell us that John died somewhere between 90 and 100 years old. 
And he was also the only of Jesus, only one of Jesus' disciples that died of natural causes, died of old age. After God, after the Holy Spirit had given him the book of Revelation, uh, which if the Lord permits, if that's the direction he still leads me to go, I may preach through the book of Revelation next year. Pray for me if I do that, because that could be sort of wild and wacky, but God will help if that's where we go. But I love the book of John. Toward the end of John, there is an interesting couple of verses. They tell us that there are some special stories seated in the book of John that are there just to give us faith. They're, they're, they're just to help us believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. By the way, many times theologians call the book of John the gospel of belief. It's all about believing. It's all about faith in Jesus Christ. But there are seven stories, these seven signs that are seated there just to help increase our faith in Jesus Christ. John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31 says this, toward the end of the book. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written, in other words, these particular ones are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. So John is telling us here in this section of verses, these couple of verses here, that there are signs given us in this gospel that point to Jesus. A sign is not the thing in and of itself. A sign points us. A sign gives direction. A sign tells us that there's something else we should be looking for. And these signs in the book of John tell us that Jesus is the Son of God and we can have faith in him and we can have power in his name. So there are seven signs in John which we're going to be going over during the next seven weeks. And they are these. Today we're going to be talking about turning water into wine, turning water into wine, which is a tough subject to cover for a Wesleyan pastor, but we're going there anyway today. Somebody put on my Facebook yesterday, Jesus must not have been Wesleyan, but anyway. Number two, the healing of the official son, the power to heal, we believe in it. The healing of the paralytic. Fourth week, we'll be talking about the feeding of the 5,000, which you guys probably already know. There was probably more something like 15 or 20,000. That's probably just counting the men, and so it was probably a much larger multitude than just 5,000. Number five, walking on the water. Number six, the healing of the born blind man, the man who had been born blind. And number seven, raising Lazarus from the dead. So, the seventh, uh, seventh sermon there, Raising Lazarus from the Dead, will actually happen for us on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter. And so I am excited, y'all, about preaching through this. I think there's power in this. I think God is going to do some amazing things in us and for us during this sermon series. I do want to mention again, Pastor Jason mentioned, but Wednesday night, we've not done this before, but Wednesday night we're going to have an Ash Wednesday worship service. So instead of doing our normal life groups, our youth group will meet up there. All our adult life groups will meet up there. Our seniors group will meet up there in worship center too, and we're going to have an Ash Wednesday service. It's going to be a little bit different than maybe if, if you've ever experienced a traditional Ash Wednesday service. This is going to be a little bit different than that. Don't expect that you're going to end up with ashes on your forehead. We're going to do something different than the traditional Ash Wednesday service. But it is the beginning of Lent, 
And Lent is a time where you can be refocused on Jesus Christ. It's a time where you deny yourself of something so you can focus on Jesus in a new way. And I'd love to invite you to come up there. We're going to have some great worship. We're going to have scripture reading from different age groups within the church. We're going to be doing scripture reading. I'm going to bring you a couple of teachings. And I just think God is going to show up in an amazing way. So we invite you for that Wednesday night. Our Awanas program will still be meeting, so the kids will still be downstairs doing their Awanas thing, but everybody else will be joined together, uh, joined together as we focus on the beginning of Lent. But today we begin with Jesus' first public miracle, again, turning water into wine. And yes, I wore this coat for a reason today. It just had to happen. There was no way around it when you preach on this subject. Um, I want us to start by reading the story together so we can be refreshed on that story. We probably read it before, but it's always good to hear God's word anew. It's always good to hear God's word maybe with a different ear, with a different perspective on it. And I'd invite you, you don't have to do this, but if God leads you to do this, I would invite you to just close your eyes and try to picture this in your mind as I read it to you. Picture what's happening. Try to get a view of what's going on here in this story about Jesus' first miracle. We're looking at John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Excuse me. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he he told them, Now draw out some and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. What Jesus did there in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. So I just want to go through the story kind of part by part, highlight some things, bring out some lessons, some things that might increase our faith in this story of Jesus's first miracle. For a second though, I want to go back and talk about the book of John again. The first chapter of the book of John is all about establishing, I mean, John doesn't go to the genealogy of Jesus. He doesn't go through his family history. He doesn't go to a birth story about Jesus. John goes past all that, and he gets right down to the crux of what he wants to tell us in John chapter 1, and that is Jesus is God. John chapter 1, that's what it's all about. I love Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door from time to time, and sometimes I'm like, "Ah, I don't have time to do a lot with the Jehovah's Witness today, but sometimes the Jehovah's Witness will come to my door, and I got nothing else to do, so this is going to be a fun time. And so, and they, and they don't know I'm a pastor usually, and, and I'll ask them what they believe. They'll ask me what they believe, and then a lot of times I'll take them to John 1.1, and I'll start to show them, hey, look, what you're saying about Jesus not being God is wrong. 
Because right here in God's Word, it teaches clearly, Jesus is God. I had one guy one time, after we talked for about 45 minutes, he said, yeah, I've been going door, door to door for a while. And I said, well, guess what? I go to door to door every once in a while too myself. And he said, yeah, I kind of thought you might be a preacher. So anyway, it can be fun. But John 1 is all about establishing the fact that Jesus was God. I'm in the first verse. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. You can't get much clearer than that. The Word was God. Then we go down to John chapter 1 and verse 14. It talks more about Jesus being the Word. And it said, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Boy, that's important right there. I don't have time to preach on that this morning, but I wish I did. Full of grace and truth. Not full of grace or truth. Not one or the other. Full of both grace and truth. We have a lot of folks in our day and time, they just want to focus on one or the other. They want to focus on truth without grace, or they want to focus on grace without truth. And that's a different story for a different day. But man, it's powerful to think Jesus came full of both grace and truth. Grace and truth. John chapter 1, verse 32 through 34 continues the theme. Then John gave this testimony. Talking about John the Baptist here. John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. Talking about Jesus. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testify that this is God's chosen one. That was the testimony of John the Baptist. And then in John 1.49, it says, Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, meaning teacher, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So John is underscoring time and time again, Jesus is God with a flesh suit on. Jesus is God. There's one translation that says he put on skin and he moved into the neighborhood. That's what Jesus was doing when he came to this earth. And John makes it so clear in John chapter 1, Jesus is God. But here's the amazing thing when we get to John chapter 2. When John chapter 2, Jesus has already been established as God, but we see a wedding celebration. We see a party taking place, a celebration. The Jews, a lot, a lot of times during a wedding, they would not celebrate for one day. They wouldn't have just a reception that lasts an hour or two. It was days of celebration that a wedding had happened. It was days of celebrating the bride and the groom, the, 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 the couple that had been established. And so a wedding celebration is going on, and the amazing thing is God comes to the party. God shows up at the party. God shows up at the celebration. It's already established in chapter 1 that he's God. In chapter 2, Jesus shows up to the party. Jesus shows up to the celebration. The celebration is in a little place called Cana. I was trying to think, how can I communicate what Cana was like to you? If Cana was in Randolph County, it would be called Eula. That's kind of what Cana was. Just a small place, not a lot of people there. If they would have had incorporation back then, it wouldn't have been incorporated. Nazareth had somewhere, but where Jesus grew up, had somewhere between five and 700 people in the city of Nazareth or the town of Nazareth, and, and Cana was smaller than that. Cana was a very small little place, just kind of where all the farmers came together to hang out. 
kind of like the grain store, the feed store, whatever. That, that's all that Cana was. It was a little place not considered significant. But Jesus goes to the party at Cana. God shows up at the wedding. And don't underestimate, church, the significance of the fact that it was a wedding. Wedding is very significant here. First thing you need to know is God loves marriage. Marriage was God's idea. God established marriage. Let me define marriage for you real quickly in case you're confused because some folks are confused about that these days. One man, one woman, one lifetime. That's it. That's it. One man, one woman, one lifetime. God's idea. Marriage is, by the way, a powerful symbol of Jesus Christ and his church. The story of the gospel is the story of a groom, namely Jesus, who is rescuing his bride, namely the church. That's what the gospel is all about. The gospel is about a wedding. It's about a groom who is looking to rescue his bride. It's about Jesus looking to rescue us. If you know Jesus, you are part of the bride of Jesus Christ. And he came to rescue you. And he came to rescue me from our sins and our failures and our separation from God. And we ought to give God some glory that he did that this morning. Because that's exciting. He came to rescue us. So it is super fitting that Jesus shows up at the wedding. And he shows up with his mother and his disciples. By the way, just a little aside, probably the fact that Jesus' mother is there and Joseph is not mentioned, his earthly father, probably means that by this point, Joseph has passed on and he's with the Lord. He's probably passed on. Thank you so much. Give it up for my son, my mini-me. Let me lay this down. Let me give you some advice about the flu. Don't get it. Don't get it. It's not fun. The recovery is not fun. But probably means that Joseph has passed away. The last time we hear about Joseph in the Bible is when Joseph and Mary lose Jesus when he's 12 years old. And, you know, he's gone for three days, and then he's found that he's in the temple courts. That's the last time that we hear about Joseph. And so probably Joseph has passed away by this time of the story. But Jesus and his disciples are at the wedding, and they're not there long when a crisis hits, a problem hits. How many of you are like that in life? You can't go very long in life without a crisis hitting. Something has to happen, right? I don't know if you feel like this sometimes, but I feel like when everything's going good, I'm like, what's sneaking up on me? This is is this too good right now. Something else has to happen. Something else has to hit. They're not there very long before a crisis hits. The crisis is that the wedding party runs out of wine. And look, in those day and time, I don't know what they did. There was probably some dancing at wedding parties and celebration, but probably one of the keys to the wedding party keeping on going was that they still had wine and they had run out of wine. You can imagine this couple, they're newlyweds. They're in a small town. I mean, a tiny little town. Everybody knows everybody and their grandma. I mean, everybody knows everybody in this small town. They're in a tiny rural town. They're already taxed to death by the Romans who are just crushing the Jews with the tax load. They probably did not have enough money to afford a lot of wine. And in this little town where everyone knows everyone, now the great scandal has happened. They're in the midst of this wedding party and they've run out of wine. You remember, I don't know if you guys, any of you have ever listen to much country music. I I joke sometimes, I say, I'm so old that I remember when country music was good. 
But anyway, uh, you may know the song. Miranda Lambert has a line in one of her songs, Everybody Dies Famous in a Small Town. Well, this wedding was going to be famous in this small town for a long time. It's the wedding where they ran out of wine. And for the rest of their lives, this couple is going to walk down the streets and people are going to say, yeah, I remember their wedding. You remember their wedding? They ran out of wine. What a scandal. What an embarrassment. They were going to start off on the wrong foot. And so it was a crisis moment for this couple. But then Mary, the mother of Jesus, steps onto the scene. Mary comes to Jesus and she says, they have no more wine. Now, I don't know if you guys have a mom like this, and my mom is sitting in here today, so i got to watch myself. But some of us have moms that if there's a problem, they're going to involve you in it. I've heard that anyway. I don't know that, you know, from personal experience or anything, but I've heard that there are moms, I'm not looking over there, there are moms like that where as soon as there's a problem, they come to their kids because they believe their kids can fix it. But here's the thing about Mary. Her son was God in the flesh. He could fix it. So she comes and says, they have no more wine. And Jesus says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Now look, if you go into the Greek, it's not, that word does not sound quite as harsh. Kids that are in here, I'm not advising you to start calling your mama woman. Okay, that might not go so well for you. Just saying. But in the Greek, it's not as disrespectful as it sounds to us with our translation. In fact, some translators even translate it, dear woman, to soften it up a little bit. But anyway, the point is, Jesus appears not to be feeling this. He appears like, look, I'm here, I'm at the wedding. Why are you bothering me with this? This is not my time. This is not my hour. But I love what Mary does. She doesn't even wait for a reply. You notice Jesus doesn't, in the dialogue there, Jesus doesn't say anything back to her. He doesn't say one word back to her, and she just simply has faith that Jesus is going to work a miracle for her even when he hasn't told her that he will. That's pretty amazing. That speaks something to us, y'all. Even if you haven't heard it, even if you haven't felt it, even if your faith is at a low place, (coughs) excuse me, understand that we know who Jesus is. Mary knew who her son was. She knew his heart. She had seen his heart growing up. She had seen how he loved people and cared for people, no doubt. She knew. The angel had told her who Jesus was going to be. And so she knew who her son was. And whether he said it to her or not, whether he said, I'm about to work a miracle for you or not, she knew because of his character, and she believed that he was going to work the miracle that she had asked him to work. We can hold on to that sometimes, even when it feels, when we're going through tough times and it feels like God is not there and it feels like we don't have a word from him, we can trust that he's a good father and that God loves us and he is working on our behalf. And if he doesn't give us what we want, guess what? He had something better for us in mind. You can trust him. And Mary trusted her son. She knew who he was. A couple of weeks back, my mom went for a test. I'm talking about moms a lot this morning, but... My mom went for a medical test, and she came back, and she said, Brent, uh, just got to let you know, they saw something they didn't like on the scan. They saw something, they're calling me back in, and I think this was a Friday, and then she had to come back in Monday. And don't you hate that when it's not an immediate turnaround? You know, you've got to wait for a few days to find out what they found out. And So on Friday, she said, yeah, i got to go back in on Monday. And immediately I said to my mom, I don't think it's going to be anything. I think you're going to be just fine. I don't know why I feel that way, but I just trust in the goodness of God. I believe it's going to be just fine. So she went back on that Monday. They did some more scans, and they turned out that it was nothing, and it was just fine. 
Now, how did I know that? And I'm not saying because I've got bad test results before medically, but I just know that God is good. And I just trust in his goodness. And I know he's good whether it comes back positive or comes back negative on some sort of test like that. God is still good. But I just knew that God was going to be good to us. I just trusted because I knew the heart of God that everything was going to be okay. Lamentations chapter 3 verses 25 through 26 says this. The Lord is good to those who depend on him, to those who search for him. So it is good to wait quietly for salvation from the Lord. Sometimes you don't have to say anything. Sometimes you don't have to do anything. Sometimes all you have to do is wait quietly and just trust that he's working. Just trust that he's moving things around on your behalf. Just trust that he has not abandoned you. He has not left you. That he still loves you. Sometimes all you have to do is be quiet and wait upon the Lord. Can I get an amen right there? I mean, that was pretty good, y'all. That was, that was good enough for something. That just stay still and wait upon the Lord because he is good to those who depend on him, to those who search for him. So out of Mary's faith, she actually brings forth a five-word sermon. And I think this is such a, a great five-word sermon here. By the way, these are the last words that Mary speaks in the entire Bible. We see Mary show up again in the Bible, but we never hear her speak any more words after she speaks these five words. And they are very simply this. Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. What a great sermon. That would be a great sermon for American Christianity right now. Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. What a fitting concluding statement to Mary speaking in the entire Bible. She knew who her son was. She knew what he was capable of. Her light was to bear a testimony to his light. So I believe if Mary, the mother of Jesus, could come and talk to you and me today, she would say simply, do whatever he tells you. Whatever Jesus says to you, you do it. Because a lot of times in our culture anymore, it's kind of like we're, we're like this. God, if you don't give me what I want, I'm done with this Christian thing. God, if you don't answer my prayer the way I think it should be answered, God, I'm done with this Christian thing. If you don't give me what I want, I'm going to walk. In other words, we're saying to God, do whatever, God, that I tell you to do. But it doesn't work that way because he's God and we're not. I saw somewhere this week online in all sorts of talk that was going on, somebody said, nobody should ever tell anybody else how to live. Well, if you believe that, if you believe nobody should ever tell anybody else how to live, you need to not be a Christian because Jesus is pretty bossy. Jesus is pretty bossy. He's going to tell you how to live. He's going to tell you how you should act. He's going to give you rules, and he's going to give you boundaries. And it's not all about that. It's about relationship with him. But he gives us guidelines, and he gives us precepts, and he gives us ways that we're supposed to act, and we're supposed to follow him, and we're supposed to submit to him. And so if you don't think anybody should ever tell you what to do, guess what? Christianity is not the faith for you. Might want to be a Buddhist or a Hindu or something like that because in Christianity, Jesus is Lord. He's not just Savior, He's also Lord. And He's going to tell you what you need to do and how you need to act. And if you would disagree with Him, guess what? You lose in the end anyway because He's still God and you're not. Do whatever He tells you to do. He's the King. We submit to Him. And so that's Mary's word to us. Do whatever He tells you to do. Then John tells us that nearby, after she said that to the servants, there were six stone pots that were used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. 
Great symbol here. These pots, the water that was in them, cleansed the outside of people. They cleansed ceremonially. Before you did worship or before you did a sacred event, you were washed. You were washed by this water as a cleansing to outwardly cleanse you. But the ministry of Jesus was going to be different. It wasn't just going to clean the outside. It was going to clean the inside. Jesus was about to do something different. He was about to inaugurate a new kingdom. If you go back to the Old Testament, if you look at the book of Exodus, Moses was the lawgiver. He received the law from God and he gave it to God's people. And the first public ministry of Moses was turning water into what? Anybody know? Not turning water into wine. Turned water into blood. It was judgment. It was wrath. It was talking about how God was a judge and how God was holy. And so the lawgiver turned water into blood. But Jesus' first miracle is turning water into wine. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm about to do something new. Yes, there is wrath. Yes, there is judgment. Yes, God is holy. But at the same time, I want to teach you about grace. I want to teach you about how he loves you. I want to teach you about how he is good to you. And so Jesus' first miracle mirrored Moses' first miracle, but it was about grace and it was about life. Jesus was going to fill us like that water filled those pots. He was going to start cleansing us from the inside out. Jesus was going to live and he was going to die and he was going to rise again so that through the Holy Spirit, he could live in us and through us. Jesus makes us right with God, and then he helps us to live righteously with God. God, through Jesus, was saying here at this miracle, Behold, I'm about to do a new thing. I'm about to do something new. There's about to be a new covenant established. A new kingdom is dawning on this earth. And it's about grace, and it's about love, and it's about surrender to God and cleansing from the inside out. And so then Jesus looks at the servants and he says to these servants, fill these jars with water. Fill these jars with water. And so these jars, these pots, there's six of them. The Bible tells us they hold 20 to 30 gallons each. So if my math is right, let's just say there's an average of 25 gallons per jar. Jesus is about to make 150 gallons of wine. 150 gallons of wine. There's probably not 150 people in Cana. There's probably not 150 people at the wedding. But Jesus is about to make around 1,000 bottles of wine at one time out of water. And like I said, there's not 1,000 people in this town. What does that tell us? Because in the details, God is trying to tell us something. That's not in there for nothing. That's not in there just as a haphazard thing that was thrown in this story here. That's there to tell us something. What does it tell us? Well, it tells us that when we have a need, Jesus can supply our need and then some. Jesus can supply our need and then some. Listen to me. We do not serve a stingy God. That's the first thing the devil did to try to trick Adam and Eve, and it actually ended up tricking Eve is basically he said, look, God's holding out on you. If you'll eat of this fruit, then your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. God's holding out on you. You need to eat of this fruit. Basically, Satan was saying, look, you serve a stingy God. He gave you everything, but he's holding this one tree back. He's stingy. He's not good. But we do not serve a stingy God. We serve a God who can meet our needs and meet our needs in abundance. The grace of God overflows into abundance. 
1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 14 says, Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with the faith and love that comes from Jesus Christ. So what is Paul saying? He's saying, I needed God's grace, I needed God's love, and he filled me, he overflowed me with grace and love. I was the worst of sinners. I was trying to destroy the church, but Jesus came in and saved me. Saved me so much it ran over my edges and ran out onto other people. That's what the Apostle Paul is telling us in this verse. And I believe that's what Jesus is teaching us by the amount of wine he made for this wedding. And that's great. That's great that Jesus overflows. It's great that we know what Jesus was doing and what he was about to do. Mary knew it. Jesus knew it. But there was one group of people at the wedding that did not know it. And that was the servants. Jesus said, look, you need to go and you need to fill up all of these pots. You need to fill them up to the brim with water. Now imagine they didn't just have water sitting around in the wedding. They didn't have water bottles like we do, bottles of water where they could just come and pour it in. No, that meant they had to go down to the well. And that meant they had to draw up some water. And that meant they had to carry the water and they had to dump it into these jars. And then they had to go back. And the Bible doesn't tell us how many servants there were. But I imagine this process took a while. Jesus said, go and fill it up. Jesus said, go and draw out water, fill it up to the brim. And these servants don't know that this is going to be Jesus' first miracle. They don't really even know who Jesus is yet at this point. They have to simply trust and obey what Jesus has said. And so they go down and they draw the water out. And I imagine they come to the first water jar and they start to fill it up. And one of them dumps his bucket into it and the next dumps their bucket into it. And then they go back and they do it all over again. And I don't know about you, but if I was them... I would be looking at that first bucket like, has this turned into wine yet? The first jar, has this turned into, I don't see no red. That still looks like water to me. And then you're filling up the second and the third. And I imagine as they were going along, they continued to look back. And they were thinking, man, this guy's crazy. This is not working. It's still water. Nothing has changed. They get to the fourth. They get to the fifth. They get to the sixth. Nothing has changed. Nothing has happened. It's still water. It's still water. All they know is this is what Jesus has told them to do. And his mama said, whatever he says to you, you better do it. And so they're continuing to fill things up, continuing to work, continuing to serve while they're waiting for this miracle to happen. Wow, what a strong lesson for us, church. Sometimes we're waiting on a miracle. Sometimes we're waiting on God to show up and do something. And all we know is that we're supposed to do what he told us to do. All we know is that he's directed us to do something. And as we continue to work and as we continue to wait, we're, we're looking for the wine, but all we're seeing is water. What do you have to do at that point? You have to continue to serve and you have to continue to have faith. It doesn't always happen overnight, y'all. I mean, the miracle of turning water into wine, by the way, that is a naturally occurring thing. When it rains, and we've had a lot of rain, so we ought to, know, we ought to be experts on this right now. But when it rains, the water soaks into the ground, the ground takes it in, it's taken up into the vine, and the vine uses that to produce fruit, and the fruit is used to produce uh, wine, or produce grape juice and wine from the grapes, and so it's really a naturally occurring thing. But it takes a while naturally in that process. Jesus was doing it a whole lot quicker, but it still took some time. When you've got a miracle coming your way, it doesn't always happen overnight. 
It doesn't always happen easily. And God, I believe sometimes God wants us to have some buy-in. He wants us to have some skin in the game. And so he allows us to work, and he allows us to wait, and he allows us to look, and we're not seeing that anything has happened yet, and we get frustrated, and we, we think about giving up. But these servants did not give up. They kept going. They kept pouring water back into these uh, jars. They kept working until they were all completely full, just as Jesus had told them to do. Thomas Edison said this. I found this quote. I think it's a great quote. He said, Many of life's failures are people who did not realize how close they were to success when they gave up. Many of life's failures are people who did not realize how close they were to success when they gave up. These servants, if they had stopped at jar number three and said, you know what, we're halfway there, nothing has happened, forget this, I'm done, I'm walking, I'm not listening to this anymore, they would have never seen the miracle happen. If they'd have stopped when jar four was filled up, they'd have never seen the miracle. If they'd have stopped at jar five and three quarters... I'm convinced they would have never seen the miracle happen because Jesus said, fill them all the way up to the top, and then I'm going to show up and I'm going to do something amazing. This morning, don't give up. What I'm trying to tell you this morning is don't give up. Whatever you're praying for, don't give up. Whatever God has told you to do and you're working for it, don't give up. Don't stop too soon. Don't give up your faith in him. Don't walk away. Keep doing what he told you to do. There's stories of missionaries who spent years in their assignments. God had called them to a country. They knew he called them to a country. There's stories of missionaries who spent seven years working in certain nations and never saw a single convert, but they didn't, get up and all, didn't give up, and all of a sudden, thousands were saved through their ministry. If God has told you to do something, don't give up. If, God, if, God is, if in your heart you believe God has promised you a miracle, don't give up. If God has given you a promise in his word that he's going to fulfill, don't give up. Keep doing what's right. Keep doing what he's calling you to do. Don't give up because your miracle is on the way. God is going to make it happen. He's going to bring it to pass. Don't give up this morning. And so they fill up all six jars all the way to the brim, and then the miracle happens. If you read back over the story, we're not told exactly where and exactly how. We're not told the exact moment that it happens. And sometimes God's not going to show you the exact moment that it's going to happen. All we know is that it happened. The water turned to wine. There was a breakthrough. Jesus turned the water into wine. And he said, draw it out. Take it to the master of the banquet. The master of the banquet was kind of like a wedding planner, the one who was overseeing everything at the wedding to make sure the feast went well and everything went well. And so the water was drawn out and it had turned to wine. It was taken to the master of the banquet. And let me, I'm going to translate you. I'm going to give you the southern edition. Are you ready? The southern edition of what he said. That's some good stuff right there. That's some good wine right there. Everybody else puts out the cheap stuff. You know, and, and but no, you guys saved the best for last. That was some good stuff. And so not only is the couple not embarrassed, but they actually end up looking like the couple of the year. It's the wedding of the year. It's the best party. How generous these people are is what everybody in that little town would have been saying about them. They saved the very best wine for last. This miracle is all about kingdom fullness. Kingdom fullness. I want you to look at your neighbor and say kingdom fullness. Kingdom fullness. In life, you can have water 
and you can have wine. This morning, by the way, let me go ahead and tell you, non-alcoholic, don't get that rumor started. I can hear it all around town. Did you know that the pastor at Rushwood had alcohol in the pulpit? No, I don't. Non-alcoholic. Non-alcoholic, it says on the label, sparkling red grape juice cocktail, non-alcoholic. So there we are. Just I know where I am. I know what I'm doing. All right. Sometimes. In life, you can have water. You know what? Water is not the worst thing. On a hot day, I remember back here on the basketball court when we were kids, me and some of the neighborhood guys used to come around on this bath. We were crazy, by the way. But we would come out here. It'd be a 97-degree day, and we'd be out there playing basketball. And we'd go right up to the water hose, man, and we would just drink, like, gallons of water out of the hose because we were, or if you're real country, the hose pipe. But anyway, we would, we would go out there, and on a, cold, on a hot day, a cool cup of water, a cold drink of water was a great thing. Water is not a bad thing. We need water to live. Water is part of life. It keeps you hydrated. It gives you life. Water is a good thing. But if you'll notice, there's some things about water. There's not, and this is natural water. The Bible talks about spiritual water, but that's not what I'm talking about right now. I'm talking about natural water. If you'll notice, there's some things about water that are a little bit bland. Not so great. I mean, water is basically colorless. Unless you reflect something off of it, it's colorless. There's nothing to it. It's just clear, and so that's not very inspiring. And if you taste water, which is what I need to do for my throat this morning, but if you taste water, there's not, not much taste to it. Not much taste right there. It's kind of tasteless. It's colorless. It's great. I mean, we need it for life, but it's a little bit bland. It's a little bit bland. There's nothing all that special about water. Wine is different, though. Wine is different. Wine has some different qualities than water has. They're both liquid. They both can refresh you when you need refreshing. They both can be part of life and part of keeping you hydrated and keeping you sustained. But wine is special because it has some richness to it. There's some richness to it. There's richness to that color. I mean, that's a beautiful color. I'm looking out at you guys today. Several of you are wearing wine-colored clothes. You know why? Because it's a beautiful color. There's some richness. There's some fullness to that. When you taste it, wow, there's some taste to it. Way more taste. It wakes your taste buds up. There's some flavor to wine that's different than water. Water's good. Water's great, and we need water for life, but there's something special about what Jesus did in turning the water into wine. By the way, in the Bible, wine is a symbol of joy. It's a symbol of joy. C.S. Lewis basically said that the core of the Christian life is joy. The greatest part of the Christian life is joy, and he said all other pleasures that we have in this life are really just a substitute for true joy. Joy is, is what God wants to bring to us. Wine symbolizes joy, and that's what God wants us to have in our life. He wants us to have a life that is marked with joy. John chapter 10 and verse 10 says, The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus says, I have come so that you may have life and have it to the full. Have it to the full. Have it in abundance. 
Have it overflowing. Have it in richness. Jesus says, I want you to have a life that has color to it. I want you to have a life that has flavor to it. I want you to have a life that is full of joy, full of richness, full of good things in this world and in the world to come. Satan doesn't want that for you. Satan doesn't want any part of your life to be marked by joy. Your church life. He does not want you to come in here and enjoy what goes on as we come together to worship God. Satan doesn't want that. He wants to make you think, oh, I wish they'd have sung more of this song. Or, oh, I wish the pastor would have said this. Or, oh, I wish whatever. He wants you to focus or he wants you to look across and say, boy, that person gets on my nerves. Can't even focus on the sermon day because that person gets on my nerves. He wants you to get focused on that or somebody who stands near you who sings off key or somebody that does something that aggravates you. Satan does not want you to have joy in your worship life. Not here and not outside of here. He doesn't want you to have joy. Satan doesn't want you to have joy in your marriage. You know you're supposed to have joy in your marriage, right? It's a symbol of Jesus and his church. Married couples, you're supposed to have joy in your marriage. You're not supposed to just survive and just get by and just tolerate each other's existence. You're supposed to have joy. You're supposed to have joy with each other. You're supposed to enjoy each other's company. You're supposed to enjoy each other's love. You're supposed to have joy in your marriage. But Satan does not want you to have that. Satan wants you to, in fact, become so miserable in your marriage that it ends. And then he can destroy a little bit more of the image of Jesus Christ. He doesn't want you to have joy there. Satan doesn't want you to have joy with your children. Those of us who have children, Satan wants you to have prodigals. Satan wants you to have people who are outside the fold. He doesn't want you to be able to testify that all my children are walking with the Lord and know the Lord. He doesn't want you to be able to have that testimony. He doesn't want you to have joy there. And I've told you before, my kids can do whatever they want to do in life. For a career, whatever, it does not matter as long as they know and serve Jesus. But Satan doesn't want that. Satan doesn't want you to have joy there. Satan doesn't want you to have joy on the workplace. When you go to work, he wants you to be miserable with your job. He wants you to be miserable with your boss and the people that you work with. He doesn't want you to have joy there. Because if you have joy there, guess what's going to happen? You're going to be an influence. You're going to be a witness, and other people are going to come to know Jesus Christ. And he does not want that. So he wants you to be miserable in your work life. Satan doesn't want you to have joy there. He doesn't want you to have joy anywhere. There's a thousand different things I could mention this morning that say, where Satan doesn't want you to have joy. He doesn't want you to have good health. He doesn't want you to have joy in your body. He wants you to be sick. He wants you to have aches and pains. Satan does not want you to be physically in physical good uh, well-being. He doesn't want that for you. Satan wants to rob every bit of joy out of you. But Jesus, Jesus wants you to have life, and he wants you to have it to the full. Rich, beautiful, flavorful. God's not holding out on you. God wants you to have a life that's full of joy. Some of you right now, you're in a place and you're like, Brent, I've got to be real with you this morning. Brent, there's some things going on in my life that have robbed all my joy. And I'm working, and I'm trying to be faithful, and I'm trying to move forward, and I'm trying to trust and obey like you talked about this morning, and I'm waiting on the miracle, I'm waiting on the breakthrough, but Brent, I'm telling you right now, there's some things that have robbed my joy. There are some things that are just keeping me from having life and having it to the full right now. I've got to be, I'm a Christian, I know Jesus, I'm following him, but I've got to be honest with you today. I don't have life, I don't have it to the full because of some things that are going on in my life. 
what do you do? What do you do when you're in that situation? Well, first of all, you need to be like Mary. Whatever Jesus says to you, you need to do it. Whatever Jesus says to you, you need to do it. Romans chapter 12 tells us that we need to offer our body as a living sacrifice. Then we'll know everything good that God has planned for us. But first, we have to sacrifice ourselves and follow Him. So we need to be like Mary. We need to have faith, and we need to obey. Second, we need to be like those servants that were filling up the water pots. Yes, they, 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 I know there was no doubt at times when they were filling that up. They thought, this miracle is not coming. The breakthrough is not coming. It's never going to happen. But yet they pressed on, yet they went forward and they saw the miracle. They got to be part of the first miracle that Jesus did. Can you imagine? I'd like to put that on my resume. I was part of the first miracle that Jesus did. What'd you do? I carried the water. Hey, that's good enough. You were part of the first miracle that Jesus did. Some of you, your miracle is coming. Your breakthrough is coming. God's got something good for you. You just have to keep serving. You just have to keep moving. You can't give up. You have to keep trusting in him. God wants you to have wine in your life. He wants you to have joy in your life. He wants you to overflow with good things. He wants you to overflow in abundance. That's what God wants for his people. God doesn't want us to walk around miserable all the time. God wants good things for us. And I'm not preaching like some sort of prosperity gospel here this morning. I'm just telling you that God loves us and he wants good things for us. He wants to see us in health. He wants to see us prosper in good ways, not for ourselves, but so we can bless others and we can bless his name. This morning, our worship team is going to lead us in one final song. And if you're one of those people who's been waiting on a miracle for a while, waiting on a breakthrough, waiting for God to do something special in your life and you're just not seeing it happen, but you want to come and you want to trust and you want to pray one more time and you want to praise his name one more time, I'm inviting you to do that today. I'm inviting you to come right here, stand right here in front of these steps, and I'm inviting you to pray and to seek. And yes, I know we've already had a time of prayer, and that was a sweet time, but this morning I want you to come one more time and just say, God, I need you. I need you to do something special. Sometimes, I'll be honest, as a pastor, I feel like will we ever have the breakthrough that we need where, where, where there's no more storm, where there's no more tumult, where, where it's calm and it's good sailing and it's easy going and we can just be blessed. Sometimes as a pastor, I feel like this. God, will you ever let that happen? Maybe you feel like that in some area of your personal life. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's with a child. Maybe it's with a relationship. I don't know, but God knows. I want you to come this morning. I just want you to pray and I want you to seek him and I want you to believe one more time that God is wanting to do a miracle on your behalf. He's wanting to do something special on your behalf so that you can have life and you can have it to the full. Will you stand with us? Listen to the words of this song. And if God leads, do whatever God tells you to do. Come and seek his face this morning.
Your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness. Faithfulness. I'm still in your hands. This is my confidence. You've never failed me yet. I know the night won't last. Your word will come to pass. My heart will sing your praise You're still enough. Keep me within your love. My heart will sing your praise again. Your promise still stands. Great is your
Need some folks to come and join these who've come down for prayer real quick. I don't know the story behind every person that came up for prayer. Some I know. Some I don't know. But I know this. We can have that confidence because God's never going to fail us. If we'll keep walking in his calling, if we'll keep walking in his light, if we'll stay faithful and obedient and true, God will never fail us. God will never fail us. Whatever your situation is, God is bigger than that situation, and he will not fail you. Father, we declare today our trust in you. We declare that you have not failed us this far. Thus far hath the Lord been faithful. Today, God, we raise our Ebenezer. And we declare you have never failed us yet. And God, we might not have seen what we wanted to see. God, those walls may not have fallen yet. But God, we believe that they're coming down and they're coming down with a shout. And so God, we're ready for the miracle. We're ready for the breakthrough. We're ready for more abundance. We're ready for what you want to do in us. And God, I pray that you would work in every situation that's represented here by those who step forward. There's those who, who did not step forward, but they have a burden on their hearts as well. And God, I pray you would work mighty in those situations. God, we want it to be so clear that you have shown up that we can't explain it away by human means. We have to say God did it for us. God came to our rescue. And God, we have faith that that's going to happen. Father, we love you and we praise you. Above all, we thank you for Jesus. You've already given us the greatest gift. You gave us your son. And if you gave up your son for us, God, how are you going to hold anything back from us that we need to serve and to glorify you and to live and to love in this world? And so, God, we're thankful for what you're doing and we're thankful for what you're going to do. Do it again, God, we pray. We love you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' matchless name that we lift up this prayer this morning. And Rushwood said together, amen. Church, I love you and there's nothing, nothing you can do about it. 
I hope you have a great week. I'll be praying for you. You'll be praying for me. God bless you. We'll see you Wednesday night.